Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at Whit Riverside. Uh, we're looking at the book of James. Anybody had a chance to delve into James themselves? Yes. Good. It's a really short book. It's only five chapters. So even if you don't like particularly reading lots of text, you can really easily read James, only five chapters. So I'd encourage you, as we do this uh, series over the next few weeks, you do have a chance to read it. It would have been sent out like a, in a letter form. So um, the people who had received it wouldn't have had chapter headings, wouldn't have had verse headings. They would just received this, this writing, and it would have been read, maybe read publicly, and they would have digested the whole thing in one sitting. So you're getting off lightly having it broken down over a number of weeks. Um, but we're going to continue our series today. So last week, James looked at chapter one. Sorry, Jake looked at chapter one. It's confusing because he mentioned last week that James can be called Jacob. So it was Jacob talking about James, chapter one. And uh, he looked at how trials and adversity in our life can actually help to grow us in God. He looked at how we learn more about God in those times. And we even learn more about ourselves in those times as well. So the difficulties that come to us in life can help us mature and grow up in God. So it's a reframing of some of the difficulties that we encounter. We all have stuff that goes on in our lives, difficult stuff, trials come. And uh, James helps us by saying in the midst of those, we can turn more deeply to God and look into ourselves as well. And it tests and grows our faith and matures us. And the whole essence of this series is, is using the wisdom that's condensed into this very small letter to help us grow up in maturity. If you missed last week, you can uh, catch up on our YouTube channel. James's letter is in the form of what's called a homily. It's a, a series of small preaches or points all stuck together in one place. So it doesn't flow like some of the other letters that you find uh, in the New Testament epistles. It doesn't he isn't tackling specific things in a church like Paul does in some of his letters when he writes to certain places. He's condensing wisdom. And that's what makes this book so powerful because James is inspired from a number of sources, inspired by some of the Old Testament wisdom teaching like you'd find in the book of Proverbs. He's inspired by the person and teaching of Jesus, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. So you can find that in Matthew 5 through 7. And also he's bringing his own wisdom from leading a church uh, in Jerusalem, the experience he has there. So you've got this condensed kind of wisdom shot. Anyone taking any of those health kind of condensed things? One person, okay. <laughs> you can buy, can't you, like vitamin shots and beetroot's the big thing at the moment. You can buy beetroot shots, you know, and, and, and you can neck those down. They taste disgusting, but it's supposed to be good for you. <laughs> and it's like health condensed into a little pot of goodness. And James is like that. It's like wisdom condensed into a little letter, into a, a very small amount of writing condensed into this book. And that's what makes it such a powerful thing to study and to look at together. And James is very, very practical. He's all about saying to you and to me, your walk has got to match your talk and vice versa. You can't just speak about things. You can't just talk about Jesus or talk about the wisdom of God. It has to have an outworking in your life. There has to be evidence of your faith. And so he's all about matching those two things together to make sure we're practically applying 
the wisdom of God to our lives. It's actually creating change in the way we live and the way we relate. So today we're going to look at James chapter 2. So we're going to read through this and uh, then begin to unpack it together. Let's begin with uh, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, they must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here, a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin, and you are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So powerful words there from James. Again, pulling no punches around what he sees is the issue of discrimination taking place in the church. We have to understand the recipients of this letter would have been quite poor themselves been quite poor in their social status, and yet they were somehow discriminating against those people like themselves and showing preferential treatment to those who were rich, even though they probably would have been exploited by wealthy landowners around and about. There were these wealthy landowners who were looking for a cheap labour, and they would exploit those in lower social settings and create an impoverished workforce for themselves. Later on in this letter, in chapter 5, James goes to town on these rich oppressors. Uh, you can, we can read it here. He says this in James 5. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look. The wages you fail to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. And those words today have a certain resonance, don't they, in our current culture. James has no time for those who use their wealth and their power to oppress others. But we'll come on to that later on in this series. Perversely, it seems, though, that the the oppressors, the rich oppressors, are are being favoured by those in churches. Even though the poor people have been exploited, it's not stopped them dishonouring the poor and showing favouritism to the rich. And James referenced this. He said, 
isn't the rich, aren't the rich people the ones exploiting you? Aren't they the ones dragging you into court? Aren't they the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of Jesus? So James wants to challenge this, this, this kind of perverse discrimination that's going on in the churches. And we don't know why it's happening. We know that wealthy people can tend to use their wealth in, in, in ways that are not always helpful. And we, sometimes people see a wealthy person and think, what can I get from that person? How can that person help me? And maybe those who are impoverished in the church thought, well, if I show favoritism to a wealthy person, a person in power, perhaps I'll garner some, something back. We don't know why it was happening, but James is, is taking it on and saying, he says this, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. The word here in the Greek means literally to receive the face. To show favoritism is to receive the face, to receive someone at face value. And it's to make judgments or distinctions based upon what you perceive that person to be, based on their external appearance. So we make a judgment on how they look and how they appear. We make a judgment on maybe their social standing. It might be their physical appearance we're judging. It might be their social uh, status. It might be how they're appearing to be poor or to be wealthy. So to receive the face is to judge quickly on external appearances. And we're all guilty of that, aren't we, to some degree? We're very good at pigeonholing people. We meet somebody, we see somebody in the street, someone cuts us up in the car. We make a judgment, don't we? we, make a, we we're very quick to judge and to decide where they sit in our value system based upon the external things that we see. James uses the hypothetical story of a rich man and a poor man coming to church. The rich man comes in in his fine clothes and he's flashing his gold ring and the poor man comes in clearly showing he's fallen on hard times. Maybe his clothes are threadbare. He's clearly somebody in poverty. Who gets the best treatment? Well, the rich man gets the good seat, invited to sit at the front with the the elders and the teachers, come and have a, a position of prominence. And the poor man is told where to stand, or better still, he's told to sit on the floor, keep him out of sight. The rich man gets the good seat, and the poor man gets the bad seat. We're all guilty of something, aren't we, of discrimination. We make value judgments on people, again, normally based upon what we perceive as we look upon their external appearance. If a poor man came into church into Riverside, clearly fallen on hard times, how would we judge that person? What would we think about that person? James says, if we discriminate, haven't you become judges with evil thoughts? And again, he's pulling no punches. He's going right to the core of the issue. As we discriminate, we become judges, but not good judges. We become judges with evil thoughts. We all tend to receive the face. We all tend to make preconceived judgments based upon our bias. We all carry a bias based upon our upbringing and our experience. We carry a bias, and that bias determines how we see other people. You may think you look through a clear glass window, but I tell you today your window is tinted. It's got a tint. I can't tell you what your tint is, but everyone looks through a tinted window. We all think we see through a clear window, but actually we all see through our biases and our prejudices. They become intrinsically part of us as we've grown up 
in different circumstances, in different areas. And so you and I have got a preconceived bias that James is really honing in on here. And so as we look through our window, which distorts and colours the way we see other people, we make judgments and we make discriminations. And it's very easy for you and for me to become judgmental, but not based upon goodness, based upon what James calls judges with evil thoughts. And in James's story, the rich man looks good, dressed well, and so he's judged well, and he gets a good seat. The poor man looks bad, and so he's judged unfairly, and he gets to sit on the floor. He gets no seat at all. And the rich man, because of the wealth and the position and the, maybe the people thought the influence that he carried, he was the one who was favoured. The poor man, who could maybe offer nothing, was discriminated against and was told to sit on the floor. To discriminate against someone is to show favour or to victimise. We can have two sides to this coin of discrimination. We can show favour to somebody, we can discriminate that way, or we can victimise them and show them, um, treat them unfairly because of a perception of how we receive them. Now, did you know in the UK there are nine protected characteristics that you're not allowed to, in law, discriminate against somebody Against. Are you aware of that? Now, interestingly, wealth isn't one of them. <laughs> but does anybody know one of the other nine? <laughs> Not being ginger. And because we have ginger people in our midst this morning, I shall apologise on your behalf. Uh, race, sexuality, gender... Age, pregnancy, religion, disability. You've done really well. Okay, here they all are. Age, disability, gender assignment, reassignment, marriage and civil partnership, pregnancy and maternity, race, religion or belief, sex, gender and sexual orientation. Now, the Equality Act came into law in 2010 and since then you've not You cannot discriminate against anybody based upon one of these characteristics. And because you all possess a number of them, that is good news. People aren't allowed to discriminate against you uh, in a place of employment, in a place like this, in church, based upon these different characteristics. Now, you might not be familiar how they protect you this morning. I thought I'd show you a little government information video so we can really understand this a little bit better. The Equality Act 2010 protects us all by making it against the law to discriminate against or harass someone because of a protected characteristic. We all have more than one of the nine protected characteristics. Age. You must not be treated less favourably for being a particular age or within a range of ages unless the treatment can be justified. Disability. If you are disabled, the Equality Act protects you from discrimination. It also requires employers and service providers to make reasonable adjustments to address the disadvantages you might face. Disability includes long-term illnesses that affect your normal day-to-day activities. Certain conditions like cancer and multiple sclerosis are automatically classed as disabilities. Gender reassignment 
You must not be discriminated against because you are transitioning or intend to transition from your sex assigned at birth. To be protected from gender reassignment discrimination, you do not need to have undergone any specific treatment or surgery. Marriage and civil partnership. You must not be discriminated against at work because you are married or in a civil partnership, whether your partner is of the same or the opposite sex. Pregnancy and maternity. The Equality Act protects women from being discriminated against because they are pregnant, including due to pregnancy-related illness or if you are a new mother. Protection from discrimination at work extends to the period of maternity leave. Outside of work, it lasts for six months after giving birth. Race. The Equality Act protects you from discrimination because of race. Race means your colour, your nationality, your ethnicity or national origins. A racial group can be made up of more than one distinct racial group, such as Black British. Religion or belief. You must not be discriminated against because of your religion or belief, or because of a lack of a religion or belief. Generally, a belief should affect your life choices or the way you live for it to be included in the definition. Sex. Sex refers to being a man or a woman. You must not be discriminated against because of your sex. Sexual orientation. You must not be treated less favourably because of your sexual orientation, whether you are attracted to your own sex, the opposite sex, or to both sexes. Find out more about protected characteristics at equalityhumanrights.com. Okay. So you may have been familiar with all those, you may be familiar with some of them. That's the law in this country at the moment. I thought it was interesting that you, your, your religion or belief has to have some kind of outward working in your life. So you can't just say you're a Jedi and then not live like one. <laughs> it, you've got to have some sort of outward sign. It's back to James, isn't it? You've got to have some outward sign of the faith that you're declaring when you fill those forms in. Now, you may have an opinion on, some, on those nine characteristics. That's entirely up to you. But that's the law in the country as of 2000. And, ten. and that law protects us all from discrimination in any one or any combination of those different areas. But James, in his letter, he talks about another law. He talks about the royal law found in Scripture. James isn't referencing the modern Bible that you and I maybe hold in our hand or have on our phone when he talks about Scripture. It's really interesting. We get confused sometimes when the Bible refers to itself. We need to understand that James, when this letter was written, most of the New Testament hadn't been recorded. He wasn't referring to the whole Bible that you hold in your hand or have on your phone or your device. His letter predates most of the New Testament writings. James is referring to Levitical law that was written hundreds of years earlier. Because we can find in Leviticus 19.18 this verse that we ascribe to Jesus. Love your neighbour as yourself. So James describes this mandate of loving our neighbour as a royal law. And when we can think about this being a law that kind of supersedes and transcends all other laws. That's, that's why he's using this royal uh, ascription here. He's, he's, this mandate supersedes all other laws. It's interesting that a few hundred years ago, there were about 200 things you could do in this country which would get you the death penalty. Yeah, you could steal something, you could, uh, you could do something very minor, and that would get you the death penalty. 
That was only a few hundred years ago in this country. A few uh, decades ago, women didn't have the vote. A few hundred years ago, we used to enslave people. So our governing laws do change and move with time. But James is referring to a higher law. He's referring to a royal law, which is enshrined in Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, as we know, picked up this, this mandate and ran with it and actually brought it to ultimate fullness by offering himself to death on a cross for you and me. No greater love has he than he who lays down his life for his friends. So Jesus brought this law to culmination and full fruition when he offered himself in a loving way for every neighbor. He brought it to its zenith, if you like, its paragon of the royal law. James loves the Old Testament law. He loves Jesus' law, and he's bringing his own wisdom to bear as well. And he's rolled this into what he calls the royal law found in Scripture. This ultimate expression of love is loving each other, loving our neighbor as ourselves. Because if we do it, he says, we are doing right. You love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing it right. You've got this faith thing down. You understand what the Old Testament talks about, you understand what Jesus talks about, you understand what wisdom I'm talking about. And this is the law that supersedes all other laws. And if we live by this law, actually there'd be no need for the Equality Act, would there? There would be no need for that to be enshrined in governmental law because that's how we would be treating each other. Because this law simply states, how would I like to be treated if I were that person? How would I like to be treated? If I came to church and my clothes were a bit threadbare and I'd fallen on hard times, how would I like to be received? Would I like to be told to sit on the floor? Would I like to receive a warm welcome? If I was advanced in years and I came into church, how would I like to be received? Would I like to be discriminated against because I'm old or I'd like to be received warmly and welcomed? If I had a disability, if I was gay, if I was pregnant, if I was from a different religion or race, how would I like to be received when I came into a faith community that had Christ at the centre? And this is James's point. This is the nature of the royal law. A faith community centred around Jesus cannot be a community that discriminates against people. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about a hallmark of maturity being consideration of others. Do you remember that list? So one of the hallmarks of maturity we found on Google was someone who shows consideration of others. Consideration means to give thought to. It means it's, it's the opposite of receiving someone at face value. So if you consider somebody else, you thoughtfully reflect on the individual standing in front of you and you think about their uniquenesses and their story and their journey, you don't make a quick judgment based upon their external appearance. So to be considerate of someone, rather than running on the autopilot of bias and prejudice, you actually stop and think about that individual uniquely in front of you. You take time to understand the person. You take time to understand the individual. And when we do that, we stop and say, how would Jesus have received this person? How would Jesus have received this individual? Because I serve a king 
called Jesus, and I'm called to work within his royal law. So how do I receive this person? Rather than jumping to receiving the face and making a decision based on bias and prejudice, how do I receive this person considerately? Because James says, again, pulling no punches, if we don't show consideration and instead we discriminate and we prefer one person over another person, well, we sin and we're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. James is saying, if you choose to discriminate against someone, then you are bringing, you act as an evil judge, you're you're putting yourself in judgment against somebody else, well then you bring the whole weight of the Old Testament law to bear upon yourself, and you will be judged by it. James refers to more of the Levitical laws in this section, doesn't he? He says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you're doing right. If you show favoritism, you sin, and you're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. So if you keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point, then you're guilty of breaking it. And he uses the illustration of murder and adultery. So is James saying we have to live under all the Levitical laws to avoid breaking one of them? Well, if that's the interpretation, you're all in trouble this morning. Because Leviticus 18, 19 says, do not wear clothing of two different kinds of material. (laughs) You're all out. Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. Again, Leviticus 18, 27. We've all been disqualified at this point. James isn't saying that you and I are called to live under all the Levitical Old Testament teachings. But what he's saying is expanded further in his next point. He says, speak and act as those who are are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You and I are called to live under this law. This law that gives freedom. N.T. Wright puts it this way quite helpfully. He says this, my friends, James is calling us. God is calling us to this sharp little letter to figure out what it means that we are to live by the law of liberty, the royal law, the law of loving our neighbour as ourselves, the law in which mercy triumphs over judgment. We are to keep open the door of mercy because we need that mercy as much as anyone else. So you and I are never going to be qualified to judge people. You may think you are, but I've got to disappoint you this morning. You're not. You're not qualified to judge people fairly. And that's what James is saying. There's only one judge, and that's God, who judges people impartially and fairly. And the other thing that happens is when we start to judge people, we close the door of mercy to them. We say, sorry, that isn't applicable to you. But N.T. says, and James says, The door that you are closing of mercy to them is the same door that God's mercy comes to you. So if you close the door to somebody else, then you're closing the door of God's love flowing into your own life. In Matthew 18, Jesus told the parable, didn't he, of the king who forgave the servant the unpayable debt. And then the servant went out and choked his friend for a few pennies because he couldn't forgive the tiny debt his friend owed him. And James is saying, if you don't show mercy to other people, then guess what? 
mercy won't be shown to you because you're closing the same door that mercy flows into your life, that mercy flows out. The same door that God comes into your life in love and grace and forgiveness and transforms you and heals you and restores you and deals with all your imperfections is the same door that mercy is supposed to flow out to other people. And if you shut that door of mercy to other people, if you slam it in their face, then you're cutting yourself off from the very love and mercy that comes into your own life. James warns us because he believes that if you do that, if you show no mercy, then no mercy will be shown to you. In fact, even the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught us, says this, Forgive us our debts and trespasses as we forgive those who are indebted to us, those who trespass against us. You see, mercy is a two-way street. (laughs) Forgiveness is a two-way street. And if we block it off one way, then it's blocked off for both ways. It's blocked off for us as much as it's blocked off for anybody else. So to summarize, if you want to become an evil judge of someone, then you will receive full judgment. You will receive the full weight of God's holy judgment and law brought to bear against you, brought to bear against me. And the bad news is, we know that none of us can live under that law. None of us can measure up to God's standard. That's why Christ came, to bring us into a new law of freedom and liberty. And our job as we grow in maturity, as NT says, let's figure out what it means to live under this law of loving our neighbors as ourselves. We desperately need Christ by his spirit to deliver us of our prejudices. They are so intrinsically woven into us because of our conditioning, that we need Jesus. We need the power of the Spirit to transform us. Yeah? Because our prejudices and biases are hardwired into our psyche at such a deep, deep level that we need the transforming transforming work of Jesus by his Spirit to come and make us new, to stop receiving people at face value, to stop making snap judgments on them, to stop showing prejudice, (coughs) but actually to become a people who consider others, who recognize that the person in front of them is a unique individual formed in God's image, fully deserving of acceptance and love. Amen. Let's move on to our next passage, Faith and Deeds. James jumps on. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister without clothes and daily food, if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith with deeds, says James. You believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. 
And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodgings to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Again, Jan's pulling no punches here as he talks about the correlation between what we say we believe in and our action. A lot of theologians struggle with James's writing because they say it's, it's just, you know, Paul's letters are full of grace, grace, grace. You know, it's, we can't earn our salvation, we can't earn our way to God. It's not based upon what we do. We can never get to God's standard by works. So therefore, James has got it wrong. But all James is honing in on is this sense that if we're going to be alive in God, we need, well, we need a heart trace. There needs to be something on the monitor that is showing that your faith is alive, some kind of outward sign that your faith is alive. James isn't disagreeing that we come to God through grace, come to Christ through grace. But when we come to Christ and we've received him and we walk with him, then it should change the way we look. It should change the way we act. Because we are image bearers of the king, aren't we? And his spirit comes to live inside us. And so therefore, we can't just carry on being ourselves and declaring we're somebody else. There has to be a a transformation taking place in our lives. And it's by degrees. It's by degrees that we receive that change. Theologians call it sanctification, being changed little by little into the image of God. So James previously has said, well, a simple way that we do that is that we we come and we fulfill the royal law. A simple one to do is love your neighbours yourself. Let's start there. That's a way of living differently, decentralising ourselves and, and putting somebody else's needs first. That's the first bit of a job description that gets handed out to every person who say they follow Jesus. Because you and I are called to redirect that generous love that flows into our lives out to every person without prejudice and without discrimination. To the rich and to the poor and to the Jew and the Gentile, to the male and the female. We've said before, haven't we, that Paul declares we're all one in Christ. There's no discrimination. We need God's help not to be a people of discrimination because it was present a few decades after the birth of the church, endemic in the human psyche. And even though we're, we're years on and we've, we've moved on and we seem to be more enlightened, we still have this, these core roots of discrimination within us because of how we're wired as humans, because of the fallenness within us. James says we need spikes in our heart trace that show actually we're different. We've encountered the living God. We've, we've received the spirit of the Lord into our lives. Because without them, your faith has flatlined. Your faith is dead. If there's not evidence of the work of the spirit in your life. And when we're talking about works here, we could just mean it's just the outworking of that wisdom in you. It doesn't mean you've got to rush off and try and earn God's love, earn God's favor, earn God's acceptance. It's just allowing the work of the Spirit in you 
to change the way you act, to change the way you live, the outworking of your faith. We mentioned a few weeks ago, didn't we, that a hallmark of maturity is putting into practice what you learn. We looked at the, uh, the story Jesus told about the wise men building houses on rock and sand. The difference between the two people was that one put into practice what he'd heard. And there are many challenges to putting into practice what we hear. There's so many distractions in life at the moment. So many things want your attention. So many things want your focus. So much anxiety and stress in the world. There's many things that are challenging you when it comes to putting into practice the wisdom of Jesus. But I'd say more than ever, now is the time that pe- people need to see a people who are countercultural, who are putting into practice a living, real, genuine faith that has a heartbeat. Because Jesus rose again. We sang a line this morning, didn't we? The Son of Jesus Christ, who is resurrecting me, in the last song that we sung. Jesus resurrects you. He resurrects you and he puts his heartbeat into you. And if you've met him and you follow him, then his heartbeat is present in you. And some of you may need to rediscover that today. Now, where is that? Oh, yes. There's the pulse of Jesus in my life. Because he is alive. He rose again. And we receive a living God into our lives. We don't receive a dead faith. We don't receive just words on a page. We receive a living person by his spirit into our life. And his heartbeat is to become our heartbeat. And that shows that our faith is real. And that shows the gospel is real when people look at you you and see you living differently. Why don't we stand together for Abel? We're just going to spend a bit of time waiting on the Spirit this morning. Can I invite the worship band to come back, please? Let's just ask the Lord for one thing each this morning. What's one area in your life that you feel the Holy Spirit is asking you to grow up in? Amy put it beautifully earlier on. It might be something you need to receive. It may be something you need to give away. You may, you may need grace for a situation. You might need help to change a firmly entrenched viewpoint that you carry. There may be an area that you feel like you're defeated in, that you've never really grown up in. It's something that that keeps coming back to you. You can't seem to break free from. Jesus, we invite your spirit this morning into the very deepest part of our lives. We recognize your heartbeat is within us. If you're on a faith journey this morning, you can just say, Jesus, I want to know more about you. I want to receive all that you have for me. You can invite that heartbeat into your life this morning. Lord, we want to come in step with you. We want to live as people who live under the royal law, the law that gives freedom the law that brings freedom to others. So come Holy Spirit, we pray.
So Jesus resting on you this morning. This beautiful sense of the Lord here. I know you ever try to get dandelions out of a lawn, but if you leave a bit in, they keep coming back. They've got really deep roots. And sometimes God wants to really go deeper into your life, to really get out those tap roots that keep re-emerging. He wants to go deep this morning and bring healing, restoration. It doesn't matter what your background's been or where you've come from or what you've done. Jesus' love is sufficient for you. God loves you completely. He sees everything about you. He sees the wonderful uniqueness that you carry. He formed you in his image. You're the apple of his eye. He looks upon you with great love. And he cherishes you this morning. So Lord, we fling wide the door of mercy to receive all you have for us again this morning. Receive the fullness of your love into our lives. And would you help us to keep that door open? That love and mercy could flow from us unhindered, God, to those around us. Thank you, Spirit. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us about this talk. To hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable. Then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.